the message today, I'll be mostly reading uh, sort of a story sermon, I guess you would say, mostly reading from a book all the day long by Millie Dawson. Uh, but first, uh, I'll share a few scriptures. I'll share a few scriptures as we go along, too. Um, <clears throat> Matthew 8, 2, Behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will be thou clean. So this man had a need, came to Jesus, and his need was met. Now the title of the message is No Need, and I'm not sure that's a very good title. Um, but anyway, uh, I didn't come up with a different one. Mark 10.51 uh, this is after about the blind Bartimaeus and you know how he was calling out and they're saying be quiet and so but anyway then Jesus called him to him or he called yeah Jesus called for him to come and uh, Jesus answered and said unto him what wilt thou that I should do unto thee the blind man said unto him Lord that I might receive my sight and Jesus said unto him go thy way thy faith hath made thee whole this man had a need the need was met. Now we're not lepers and we're not blind so we don't have those needs. And so that's kind of where the title comes from, no need. We don't have needs, right? Well, uh, Mark 8, 3, uh, about after Jesus had been teaching for a while, I don't know whether it was a couple days or what, this crowd out in the wilderness and uh, Jesus said, if I send them away fasting to their own houses, they will faint by the way, for various of them came from far. And his disciples answered him, from whence can a man satisfy these men with bread here in the wilderness? And uh, he asked them, how many loaves have you? And they said, seven. Uh, and so, and then they had a few small fish too. And so, you know how it went. Jesus fed the 4,000. And they had seven baskets of food left. They started out with seven little loaves of bread, and they ended up with seven baskets of food. It's kind of nice. And they that were eaten, and they that had eaten were about four thousand. There was a need there, and the need was met. Mark, uh, Matthew six says, "Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things." So that feeding the 4,000 or feeding the 5,000 is a pretty good illustration of carrying out of that verse, those verses. Mark 10, 17. And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? This young man had a need, and he came to Jesus. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, and if you know that account, you know that his need was not met. He had a need, Jesus loved him, and his need was not met. So think about that. It was a cold, blustery day in February of 1920, the 29th to be exact, making it a leap year when Joseph Gillians Dawson made his appearance into the world in a small house out in the country near Linden, Virginia, February of 1920. 
It was another cold winter day in January of 1931 when a baby girl entered this scene to Wilbur and Anna Mary Morris in the Shenandoah Valley near the small town of Strasburg, Virginia. A baby girl, their second child, was born and named Mildred Lee, also of humble origin with no claim to wealth or fame. Well, okay, so he was born in 1920, so he was in World War II. When he got back from World War II, um, so there at Stra uh, um, well, there in that Loudoun County area, um, Joe tried to pick up the pieces of his life and go on from where he had left off when the war called him away. He found a job, and on Saturday and Sunday night, like most of the rest of the young men, he would head for town in a good show. The only theater open on Sunday night in those days was in a town about 25 miles away, so he and some of his friends usually headed there early every Sunday evening to be on time when the show started. But on a certain day in April of 1945, fate stepped in on the whim of a friend and changed the course of Joe's life. Fellas, we've gone to the show every Saturday and Sunday night for weeks. I'm for a roller skating rink in Strasburg tonight. What do y'all say? One of the fellows spoke up, hopefully. Not I, said Joe. Look, guys, I made it back in one piece from the war, and I'm not going to risk life and limb on roller skates, he protested. Don't tell me you're afraid of a pair of skates after fighting a war, one of them joked. You just bet I am, Jerry replied. I can't roller skate, and I've seen people falling around on them. Those things can fly out from under you, and you can really hurt yourself. After much laughing and joking around, a couple of the boys convinced Joe that they knew how to skate. We'll hold on to you until you get the hang of it, and you won't get hurt, they said. Just think about all the pretty girls that go there. Amidst much laughing and good-natured jostling, they made their way to the skating rink in Strasburg for a Sunday night of fun. With a buddy on each side supporting him, Joe made it around the rink once, twice, and then a third time. Yes, he seemed to be getting the hang of it, all right. Well, Joe, it looks like you're doing okay now, they said, and with a push, they propelled him forward on his own into the crowd. True to his earlier foreboding, one foot went one way and one another. Then both feet went out from under him, and he found himself flat on his back on the floor with all his breath knocked out of him. As he opened his eyes, he found himself looking into what to him seemed the most beautiful face he had ever seen. Blue eyes looked down on him with pity. Oh boy, I'm dead, and this is heaven, and here's an angel, he said. Uh, so anyway, they got married and lived happily ever after. Well, not quite. Um, they did get married. Um, moved to a far farm uh, around Front Royal to farm outside Warrenton, Virginia. We did well there, and Joe soon became manager of the farm. We moved into the newly built manager's bungalow and began to furnish it with new furniture bought, bought on the credit plan. But nevertheless, at last my dreams of a nice home were going to be realized. I had grown up very poor. I wanted from life a nice home, a good husband, and some healthy, happy children. With the birth of our first child, Stephen Douglas, on March 4, 1950, it began to look as though all my dreams were coming true. Sounds pretty typical of us. We were doing well there on the farm. Things had never looked better for us. Joe was taking on-farm training under the GI Bill. The money he received from the government plus his farm pay was sufficient to help us live well. Then, too, our house was supplied to us rent-free. We received milk, eggs, and meat, chicken, pork, and beef. We raised a large vegetable garden in the spring and summer, and I preserved these in jars for the winter. With the larder full, we felt rich. I was even able to sell the cream from the milk we received. Joe gave the cream money to me. I felt as snug as a bug in a rug. I felt all of my dreams for the future were coming true. Well, then something happened. Um, Joe's brother, 
kept inviting them to church. And they weren't much interested. Uh, but they finally went uh, to satisfy him. There was a visiting speaker from D.C. And uh, that night, they got converted. Both of them responded to the message. About a month later, I was a speaker at the church from New Tribes Mission. And um, so they applied. Before we left there that night, we were clutching application blanks for enrolling in New Tribes Mission. When we left the church that night, we were bubbling over with what God was doing in our lives. We felt as though we were new people. Joe had been a heavy smoker all his life, cross as a bear if he was out of cigarettes, but he came to a decision at that moment. Hun, he said, how can I go to the foreign field and tell them about a savior that can save them from their sins with a cigarette in my hand? They have to go. The Lord will have to deliver me from them. So saying, he opened the window of the car and pitched his pack of cigarettes out into the darkness. He ate a lot of popcorn as he rode the tractor up and down the field, stirring out feed to the cattle or running around the farm on the jeep. But never again did he ever take another puff of a cigarette. The Lord marvelously delivered him, and we didn't even realize it was a big thing. We just completely expected him to do it, and he did. We filled out the application blanks and sent them off. Joe went to work as usual. I fed and tended the kids and put them down for a nap. Then I had time to think. I walked through the little house looking at the furniture we had. I thought of the security, the house, the furniture, and the job represented. I remembered the words of the missionary. You go by faith. You trust God to meet your needs. A little bit related to our Sunday school lesson, isn't it? I began to feel sick inside, wondering what we had done. Had we lost our senses? Were we being bowled over by an emotional kick that would leave us destitute when it passed by? I got down on my knees by the living room sofa. I did not know too much about praying. My prayers had consisted of, now I lay me down to sleep. When I was a kid and asking God not to let my mother die, she suffered badly from migraine headaches, and when I was a kid not understanding a migraine, I had a real horror that she was going to die. But there on my knees that day, I poured out my heart to the Lord. I told him that I was willing to do whatever he had for us. I opened my eyes and looked around. I told him the house, the furniture, and everything we had there was not important if he wanted to use our lives to take his word to people who had never heard. As I poured out my heart to him, he heard and answered. He flooded me with a peace I had never known before. The whole world looked clean and new to my eyes. It sparkled and shone on that cold November day. Out in the fields as he worked, Joe, too, was going through his own time of doubt, fear, and desperation. Was he being foolhardy? Was this of God or some wild imagining of his own? He had a wife and two small children to consider. Things were going well for him at this time on the farm. Was he throwing away his chances for a comfortable lifestyle for some pipe dream? There in the field he knelt to pray and seek the mind of the Lord. The more he prayed, the more convinced he was that the Lord was leading him in this step. He rose from his knees filled with a peace that passes understanding and willing to step out by faith. Our application was accepted. We had hoped to go in January when the new term started, but some debts we had prevented this. We found that when selling your furniture, the same pieces that had cost so much are not worth much as second-hand furniture. Joe gave his notice at the farm. His boss was astounded and attempted to talk him out of this foolishness. His boss's wife said, Joe, I just can't picture you in a long white robe. My older sister called me from California and wept. She was sure we had gotten involved with some cult and were headed for disaster. 
Friends and family all tried to influence us not to throw away the good things we had for a vision, but our ears were deaf to their pleas. We continued to make our plans. We sold our furniture and moved into a small furnished apartment. Joe went to work temporarily for the Virginia State Highway Department. We wanted to get our bills paid off and be ready to go to the Mission Boot Camp in July when a new term would start. We had received the command and we were ready. You know, in Luke 5, Jesus told a couple of the disciples to launch out into the deep. And uh, they thought it was kind of pointless, but they followed his command and they got tremendous results. And when they came back to shore, it says, when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. Jesus said in Luke 14, 33, So likewise, whoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. And this young couple with two little boys forsook all and followed him, and they were his disciples. Um, I have to be brief here with what I pick out to read, but this is while they were at boot camp, New Tribes Mission in the mountains. Somewhere they went in the mountains to make it real, try to get them used to primitive um, living. And um, they had they had a camp there, and they lived in this little shack-like thing, I guess. And, and she was eight months pregnant, and uh, all they had for a bed was just a board with some straw on it. Um, but... Um, it says, um, he taught, speaking about God, he taught us things that we could have learned no other way. He taught us to trust him for every need. Steve was just a little fellow, not yet three years old, when he taught us the power of a little child's faith. Steve had been running around the floor pretending that he was an airplane. With arms outspread, he ran around the room. Busy working, I had not noticed that he had a comb in his mouth. In his antics, he accidentally ran into the side of a cupboard and drove the large comb down into his throat. His screams brought me running to his side. Looking down his throat, I saw a cut on the side of his throat that the comb had made. By that evening, when Joe came in from his job on work detail, Stevie's throat was very sore. He was crying and refused to try to eat his supper. We tried to coax him into drinking his chocolate milk. Bravely, he tried to swallow it, but could not. He looked up at his dad with tear-filled eyes. Pray, Daddy, he said. We bowed our heads. Joe prayed a fervent prayer, asking our God to heal his little boy. We had no money. There was no one else to turn to. Try again, Joe said as he held the cup to Stevie's lips, but still the little fellow could not swallow the chocolate milk. Once again we bowed as Joe prayed. Once again he held the cup up for a trial drink, only to have Stevie cry and push the cup away. You pray, Stevie, said his dad wearily. Stevie bowed his head and asked the Lord to take away the pain in his throat so that he could drink his chocolate milk. He raised his head, reached for the cup, and downed the drink in just a few gulps as we looked on astonished. Does it hurt you now, son? Joe asked. Stevie solemnly shook his head. No. Astounded, Joe called for a flashlight. We looked down his throat by means of the light. To our amazement, the cut was gone. There was no sign of it. We knelt in grateful thanksgiving and praise, knowing that we could go forth trusting in this one who so graciously answered prayer. 
A few months later, when snow fell there in the Pennsylvania mountains, it found us unprepared. Stevie had no boots to wear in the snow. He had to be carried each morning to toddler's class on our way to our classes. That night, he fervently prayed for boots. The next day, one of the ladies in the camp came bringing him a little pair of red boots, which he proudly wore as he trudged through the snow. Then one day, having watched some of the bigger kids in camp coasting downhill on a sled, he decided he would take a ride also. He climbed up on the sled that had been left sitting there. He was too young to realize that the sled required snow to coast downhill. The snow had melted away, and the sled runners sat there on the muddy ground. Stevie, you have to have snow to ride a sled, said a lady as she came by and saw him sitting there crying. You have to pray for more snow so that the sled will be able to coast downhill, she said. That night, as Stevie said his prayers, before I tucked him in, I heard him say, And dear God, please send some more snow here so I can ride downhill on the sled tomorrow. The next morning before daybreak, he stumbled sleepily out of the little bedroom, ran over to the kitchen table and pulled out a chair. Using the chair, he climbed up on the table, kneeled before the window and pulled back the curtains. He fairly leaped to his feet on the table and clapped his hands with glee. It really did snow, he exclaimed. It was the biggest snow that we had that year. Stevie got his sled rides. People jokingly said, please don't let Stevie pray for any more snow. Well, see, in John 16, 24, it says, um, Hail to have ye asked nothing in my name, ask and ye shall receive that your joy may be full. Just about the time we were being set apart for the field, or where they had finished their training, I guess, word was received from Venezuela that they had received their permit. The permits had been hand, held up. Missionaries there were all overdue for furlough, and they wanted new missionaries as soon as possible. Joe had been in the morning prayer meetings when they were praying long and hard for just this permit. His heart was challenged to answer the call. Together we prayed about it and sought the mind of the Lord for our next move. The mission director had already told Joe, You've been set apart for the field, but no one knows you. You have no support. We feel that Millie and the three children should stay here in the camp, and you should go on deputation. Taking the mission film and presenting it in the churches, you'll be able to raise your support for the field. They yeah, that's kind of a standard practice. You know, you go around and visit churches, 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 and when finally you get enough money promised to see you through, then you go. Joe had agreed to do this, and that was the way our plans were going, but suddenly we knew that the Lord wanted us to go ahead and make the step of faith, trusting him for every step of the way. Joe went up to the office to talk to the director, who was not so sure that this was God's plan for us. He tried to talk Joe out of his belief that this was God's leading. Finally, Joe said, John, what would it take to convince you that the Lord wants us in Venezuela right now? What would the Lord have to do to get you to give us your approval to go to Venezuela and not stop to take time to go on deputation? John stared at him for a long moment and then said, If God sends in your passage, then that should be evidence that he wants you to go right away. If God sends in your passage, then I'll approve of your going right away. How much do you figure it'll take for our passage, Joe asked. John did some figuring on his notepad and said, I figure $500 should get you and your family there. Now this is in the early 1950s, so $500 was significant. Joe left the office exhilarated, filled with hope. He burst into the little cabin by the river where we were living and told me, Millie, let's pray. John has told me that if the Lord sends in $500 for our passage, he will release us to go right away without doing deputation. Come on, let's pray. 
We went into the tiny bedroom and fell on our knees by the bed, calling on the Lord to send in the $500 if it truly was his will for us to go at that time. We were still praying when we heard a knock at the door. We arose and answered it. As we opened the door, we saw one of the ladies of the camp whom we knew well and for whom we had great affection. She and her husband were an older couple with a growing daughter. They had sort of looked after us as their children during our time there, and our children loved them. We invited her in, and she chatted with us for a while. Then as she rose to leave, she pulled an envelope from her pocket. You've been set apart to go to the fields of my husband, and I wanted to help you out a little to get you on your way, she said with a smile. We thanked her politely and saw her out. Well, hurry and open, and I said excitedly, let's see what it is. Joe casually opened the envelope. Probably five or ten dollars, he said. Oh, ye of little faith, we were asking the Lord for five hundred dollars, but expecting five or ten. Well, the Lord was gracious anyway. When Joe pulled the enclosed check from the envelope, it was for five hundred dollars. To say we almost passed out from sheer excitement and joy is putting it mildly. Joe ran out the door and took off for the office as fast as he could run. He had talked to the director less than an hour before. Now here he was with five hundred dollars in his hand, and we had not mentioned it to anyone but the Lord. Joe burst into the office and confronted the surprised John. Did you really mean it when you said we could go if the Lord provided our passage? He gasped breathlessly. John, a little taken back at this abruptness, said slowly, Yes, that's what I said. Joe plopped the check down on the desk in front of John and grinned as John did a double take. He shook his head and rubbed the back of his neck in astonishment. Well, I'll be as good as my word, he said. I told you that you could go if the Lord gave you $500 for passage, so I have to stick with it. But the honest truth is that I told you that to get you off my back. I had no idea you'd get that much together for a long time. That, I, if I had time, I'd ask you what verses this reminds you of, but what came to my mind was Isaiah 65, 24, and it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer, and while they are yet speaking, I will hear. And then, of course, uh, we'll ask you this, God's phone number. Yeah, Jeremiah 33, J-E-R 333. Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. And when you call that number, you're not put on hold, you're not told to leave a message, you're not, it's not said that I'll get back to you as soon as I can. It doesn't even say if it's an emergency plane, please hang up and dial 911. Because J-E-R 333 is God's 911, the Christian's 911. Okay, so they they um, headed for Venezuela and they um, they got down there and then they flew in an old DC-3 to Puerto Ayacucho. That must have been sort of the mission headquarters. Okay, so they're walking down the steps of the plane. The missionary standing to the side at the foot of the stairs watched us descending. He saw a short, dark-haired man in his early 30s carrying a small boy of two and holding the hand of another little boy of three. By his side was a blonde-haired woman carrying a baby of about a year, he surmised, who was obviously going to have another before too long. As we reached the bottom of the stairs and stepped to the side, he took Joe's hand, looked him in the eye, and said, You're the biggest fool I've ever met. That shook us up, to say the least. <clears throat> but Joe shook his hand warmly and greeted him as though he had not just been badly insulted. My insides were quivering with the first tinge of doubt that I had heretofore experienced. It was one thing when the world kept telling us that we were fools and making a dreadful mistake, but here was a full-fledged missionary looking us in the eyes and calling us fools. Weren't the missionaries supposed to be happy to see us? 
Weren't we supposed to go by faith, trusting the Lord every inch of the way? Why then should we be called fools by the very ones we had come to work with? My heart sagged. Well, then, um, the um, now this is on a canoe trip upriver uh, to get to actually the remote place where they were to serve. On the 11th day, we were told that we were near the place where they would pull into shore for us to unload. From there, it was about a half-mile walk to the village. Finally, we saw two men standing on the shore waving to us. As our boat approached the shore, we were in clear view of those standing on shore. One said, the Dawsons, oh no. As you can imagine, that did not make our day. We knew the speaker Dave from New Transmission Boot Camp. He possibly thought, why me, Lord, with good reason, we never ask. Only the scrubs make it, he told us later, so we realized where we stood in his estimation. As we told ourselves later, we had not come all this way to be deterred by the lack of approval of man. It was the Lord we wanted to serve. He was the one we wanted to please, and to do that, there would be many obstacles in the way. And I don't have time to read near all that. Um, okay, just um, let me see here. It was February of 1955. I was almost two months pregnant with child number five. The men were preparing the supply boat to return to the work upriver. We had hoped to be on this boat, but we had just been told by the field director that we would have to stay downriver till after the birth of the baby. Seven long months. What could we do in all that time that might be profitable toward reaching the Yanomamo for Christ? By the way, where they served was in southern Venezuela next to Brazil, a very large area there, at, uh, it's called Amazonas, and uh, so they were to, and, they, and this, this tribe, uh, Yanomamo, were, were what they were uh, reaching out to. We discussed this at length with the director. I've never had any problems in childbirth, I told the director, and I feel that we can go trusting ourselves to God to meet our needs when that time comes. We're willing to go by faith and trust him all the way. We won't expect the help of others who might feel put upon in some way, I told Carl. We'll just be happy to be allowed to go, Joe said. But Carl was adamant. We must stay behind in San Fernando. During those days while the boat was preparing to leave and we were sadly contemplating being left behind, one of the believers in San Fernando gave birth. She was a member in the local church founded by some of our missionaries. They discovered that the baby was one of twins, but the other twin was not cooperating. The mother was in trouble. The local midwife was working in another area at her garden site and was not available. What could be done to help this poor woman? There was talk of trying to take her by boat down to Puerto Ayacucho, but would she make the long trip in time to save her life? When they went to talk to her about it, she said she would not go. I will stay right here in my own home and trust the Lord for the baby to be born. If I'm unable to give birth, then I will die right here in my own home, still trusting the Lord, she said. Shortly after this, the second baby was born. Mother and baby were doing fine. At the men's morning prayer meeting the next day, Carl spoke on faith. He mentioned the lady's faith to trust the Lord and how the Lord had met her need. I just wish we had missionaries who had that kind of faith who could go out trusting the Lord for everything, he said. Joe stood. I'm happy to hear you say that, Carl, he said. Millie and I went to go upriver by faith, trusting the Lord for everything. 
Carl looked at him astounded, not knowing what to say. What could he say? After a pep talk like that and a legitimate response, what more was there to say? Praise the Lord, we were on our way upriver. We were on our way to Tamatama to prepare ourselves for, for the work with the Yanomamo. We would have to learn their language so we could tell them there is a God in heaven. He is the creator of the universe. He is the God who loves the Yanomamo. He gave his son to save their souls and deliver them from sin. He was the God who had sent us with the message of the cross. Michael Eugene was born in Tamatama, August 2, 1955. A couple months later, talking about their trips on the river. I remember our first trip as a family. Mike was the baby. He had been crabby before we left Tamatama with what I thought was a bad diaper rash. And I doctored him for a couple of weeks, talking about, okay, so she said she knew there would be many obstacles as they served the Lord. Um, I doctored him for a couple of weeks with everything that I could think to use. We spent the night at the big falls at the mouth of the Kunatanamo River. The next day, the large dugout canoe would have to be taken out of the river and pulled up the mountain on skids to get it around the falls and into the river at the top. Then we would continue on our way to the village that we had planned to visit. Mike cried most of the night. The first rays of dawn found us heating some water and pouring it into a large aluminum pot so that I could give him a bath and try to soothe his rash, which had now turned into big open sores. Our Yukana motor uh, fellow was taking care of the uh, motor on the canoe, came over to where I was bathing the crying baby. Squatting down on his haunches, he peered at Mike sitting in the big pot. What's the matter with your baby, he inquired. What seems to be the trouble? I heard him crying most of the night. Is he ill, he questioned. I told him about the sores and how they were affecting Mike with fever and much pain. He looked at them closely and then said, Those aren't sores. Those are the larvae of a type of blowfly that lays its eggs in the flesh. This news horrified us, of course, and we could hardly imagine the, ba the pain the baby had suffered for weeks with 19 of these creatures eating his flesh. There was nothing to do at that point but to dry him off and dress him as preparations were being made to haul the dugout up the side of the mountain. We had to follow. They put the dugout back in the water at the top. We all piled in again. We're once more on our way, this time heading up the Kuntinamo River, where we would arrive at the place called the port. There we would leave the dugout and continue on by foot. When we reached the port and left the dugout, some of the Yanomamo appeared out of the forest to carry baggage and kids for us. An old Yanomama woman was carrying Mike. Sitting in her carrying strap in his condition was making him miserable. When we stopped to rest, I showed her the open holes and told her what uh, Velasquez had said. Velasquez. Don't worry, she said. Wait until we get a little farther along and I will get them out for you. I was so happy to hear that I could have hugged her, dirt, sweat, tobacco cut and all. True to her word, at our next stopping place further up the mountain, she went off into the forest and returned with some leaves that dripped white sap from their broken stems. Taking the baby from my arms, she began dripping the sap into the open holes. Then she told me to wait a little while until the poison took effect. Soon she was squeezing the large ugly worms out of the writhing, screaming babies I held him tight. In the end, I don't know which one of us was the most limp and faint with the ordeal, the poor baby or me, as I suffered with him. When you're sold out for Jesus Christ, when you've forsaken all to follow him, he will supply your needs in miraculous ways. But life will not be a piece of cake, will not be smooth sailing. There will be disappointments, 
hardships, tragedies, and why doesn't the Lord protect from those? Well, John 16, 33, Jesus said, In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Just what all that's applying to, but I think it could apply to these situations too. That, it was said just nine verses after Jesus said, Ask and ye shall receive that your joy may be full. And so, many things I could read, but uh, I'm not going to. Um, the book is challenging to read all the way through. Chapter 38 is, he must have been an angel. It's about some almost miraculous way in which when they needed to come back to the States one time that uh, they didn't have much money and tickets and stuff, and it all worked out. Okay, so chapter 38, he... He must have been an angel. Chapter 39 is simply titled Renee. This was June of 1992. Mike, a baby that had the worms squeezed out of him, would have been about 36. And they'd been married 12 years. Renee, they had three children, three boys, seven, five, and three years old. And he had been asked to go to Puerto Rico for a mission conference. And um, she came down with malaria. And um, I, the book talked about this kind of malaria, or just mentioned it. Falciparum or something like that, malaria. Um, National Institutes of Health said severe and fatal malaria is predominantly caused by plasmodium uh, fal. Falciparum. Well, anyway, so it ended up he had it too in Puerto Rico, and the oldest boy had it. And, uh, of course, they would get malaria off and on um, and usually get over it. But he got back from Puerto Rico. He could, he could barely make it. And so he was down. She was down, and the boy, she died. She died. He, 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 he survived, the boy survived. So, and following up on the story, looking at the website and so on, uh, he's still, he, he remarried evidently, and he's, most, a lot of the family's still, still, still there. In fact, uh, they had 10 children, raised them all there in the jungle, of uh, rainforest, tremendous. Um, hers, <laughs> she has one chapter called Raising 10 Kids, uh, maybe I'll read uh, a little bit there. This will be interesting to the youth. Um, talks about raising 10 kids. There were things kids do when you're not around and you don't find out about until later when they're telling the story to someone, things they knew better than to tell at the time they happened. It's just as well. I would have been gray much sooner. One such event occurred as Joey and Gerald, and that would have been the two youngest. I don't know how old they were at this time. Uh, we're returning home for a break from the school in Tamatama. They stopped at an island on the way up river. There they discovered a huge anaconda snake asleep at the base of a high rock. Feeling extra adventurous, they decided to kill that snake and take it to the village where the people would have a feast. You get a big rock and climb up there and drop it on the snake's head. When he wakes up and lifts up his head, I'll hit him in the head with his paddle, Joey told Gerald. So, taking the largest rock that he was able to carry, Gerald Gerald was the youngest. Gerald clambered to the top of the rock. 
Let it go, Joey hissed and with a wave of his hand. Gerald let go of the rock, which dropped with a thud on the sleeping snake. Snake didn't even move a muscle, but slept right on. Joey motioned to Gerald to descend. You didn't drop it hard enough, he complained. Here, you hit him with a paddle when he lifts his head. I'll drop the rock. I'll get a bigger one. When the second rock hit the hit with a big thud, the snake slowly started to uncoil and raise its head. When Gerald, who was standing by nervously with the paddle, saw the huge head and snake eyes looking at him, he forgot about using the paddle and ran off toward the boat as fast as his legs could carry him. After a breathless Joey caught up with him at the boat and they were safely out in the river again, they laughed together uproariously over how frightened they had been when the snake woke up. Years later, when I finally heard the story, I said, I'm amazed that I raised any of you. It's just the goodness of the Lord that any of you survived. Um, next chapter is about Gary's fall. Uh, he was with a, a native and uh, they were going somewhere and they wanted to take some, they thought they'd take some monkey meat to this village that would make everybody happy. And uh, so they, he'd shot a monkey way up high in a tree and when it fell down, it lodged in a branch. And so Gary climbed the tree uh, to get the monkey. And uh, he was out on a limb and he didn't know it, but something had eaten in the limb underneath. So he was standing on this limb shaking the tree and the limb gave way and he fell long ways. And, uh, of course, when he landed, he's unconscious. When he came to, the native was rubbing his face and crying. And he, I guess they had learned a lot of stuff there by virtue of necessity. And he, he had a compound fracture in his ankle, broken wrist, broken ribs, back hurt terrible. And uh, so just him and the native there, and he's losing a lot of blood. But anyway, that's the story, too. But he, he, he survived. He barely survived. So they had all those. So I'm saying um, that, uh, you know, following the Lord, being sold out, being sold out to Jesus Christ like they were, uh, literally and spiritually, um, everything. There's, and so the Lord meets needs in miraculous ways. Now, I taught a sermon, No Need, because we very seldom have those kind of needs because we're not in those kind of situations. We don't allow ourselves to get in those kind of situations. Um, but so, so there's going to be a lot of miracles, but there's also going to be a lot of obstacles, a lot of difficulties. So, it's, so it's, sometimes I guess it's hard to understand. Why does the Lord do a miracle one time, and the next time he just lets you go through all these troubles? But anyway, I'm, I'm just going to close with one verse. Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it.